may be seated. We can turn with in your Bibles the book of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 17 through 21 this morning, but I will begin reading at verse 7 and go all the way to chapter 5, verse 5 to set the context. So 1 John 4, we'll begin reading at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who is, uh, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we are thankful for your love for us, and we are thankful that you are love itself. Your love is your essence, and we're thankful for the revelation of it in the cross work of Christ, in the incarnation of our Christ, in the incarnation of the Son. And we are thankful for this blessed truth. We are thankful for blessed theology that ought to warm our hearts, that ought to stir our souls and remind us of what Christ has done. And we ask and pray that you'd help us as your people to understand what that means and how that applies to us. We're thankful for your love for us. And as you've loved us, help us to love you and help us to love one another. And we're thankful for the assurance of loving one another can give to us as it pertains to our status before you. We're thankful we do not contribute to our status before you in any way, but we're thankful for the assurances that you do provide for your people. And we confess so often, O oh Lord, we can fear you. We confess so often, O oh Lord, we can doubt you. 
and we pray that we would not do so. We pray that we would have a healthy and holy fear, a filial fear of you. We pray that our fear would not be slavish. Our pray, we pray that our fear would be one that trusts in what your promises have said. And we're thankful for the assurances that you do, you do provide in your word, but also in our lives as well. We are thankful that we do know you, and we do know you in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask and pray as we have known you and as we believed upon you, we pray that we would love one another. And we are thankful that when we fail, Christ is sufficient and Christ's work is sure that we are forgiven in him. So we pray that you'd help us now as we come to understand your word. Give us the boldness that we need. Give us the confidence that we need before you. And we pray that you do so by your spirit. We confess there are difficult things for us to grasp uh, in these words, but we know that they are your word and all scripture is God breathed. And we pray that you'd send forth your spirit to have a better understanding. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please change their heart. Please show them their sin and show them their need for Christ. For your people, we pray that you'd give us that understanding that we uh, might learn more about you and we might know how to apply these blessed truths to our hearts and lives. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the day of judgment is coming when every human being will have to give an account for all that they have done, whether good or bad. For the unbeliever, this should be a frightening thing to consider. But for the believer, do we need to fear that day when Christ comes again? Will God be playing a movie of everything that we've done and everyone will see all the things that we have committed? Well, I think John's words in verses 17 and 18 give us some assurance to the contrary. We do not need to fear that day. We do not need to fear the judgment day because Christ's work is sufficient. Because the judgment day has come forward in the cross work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we have a perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and because he still is that perfect advocate for us at the right hand of God the Father, we can, as the people of God, have boldness in that day. And the reason we can have boldness and confidence in that day is because of the love of God. God is love, but we see his love for us in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, John is writing to give assurances. He is writing to encourage his hearers in the face of threats. He's reminding them of where their foundation lies. And that foundation, that assurance is founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for his people. And we've seen the commands that flow out of that. God's people, not to save ourselves, but because we have been saved, ought to then love God and love one another. And the foundation for our love for God and love for one another is God's love for us. And John is still continuing in that discussion about love and what that means and what that looks like. Now he's really turning to discuss how do we love God? How does it manifest when we, uh, when we say we love God? What does that actually look like? And I think there are two problems that show one does not love God that we see in these passages. The first problem is a slavish fear. One does not trust in the promises of God. One is fearful of the punishment rather than relying upon the fact that the punishment has been paid in the Lord Jesus Christ. John's emphasis seems to be, and we can phrase it in the form of a question, how could God forgive me? 
How could God forgive my sins? But God does forgive sins. God does take away our sins. God does wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ. How can we fear punishment? How can we fear that day when Christ has finished that work for us? And because of him, we are not guilty in the sight of of God. And if we have this slavish fear, how then can we commune with the God of heaven and earth and commune with him forever? So if we love God, we trust in his promises. We understand our standing before him. But also if we love God, we love one another. And the problem is if we say we love God, but in reality, we hate our brother. It's a manifestation of those who cannot fathom God's love. They might say they love God, but in reality, they do not love and care for their brother, showing that they do not love God at all. And if you don't have Christ and one does not have love, there is something blessed that we can look to. There is one we can call upon, and that is Jesus Christ. And so again, all this is meant to be an assurance. And so in 1 John 4, verses 17 through 21, John reminds his hearers that our love for God is manifested in our boldness before God and our love for one another. If we say we love God, if we say we believed on Christ, then we can have boldness before God, before his throne, and then we also ought to love one another. So if you say this, I love God, then we ought to then have boldness before God and love one another. And those are my two points this morning. First of all, we'll see our boldness before God, verses 17 and 18. And secondly, we'll see our love for God in verses 19 through 21. So boldness and love, our boldness before God, verses 17 and 18, and then our love for God in verses 19 through 21. So let's first look at our boldness before God in verses 17 and 18. Now, remember last time I was here, we looked about, we looked at uh, and talked about how no one can see God. We talked about how God is invisible, God is incomprehensible, God is God, and we are man. We cannot comprehend what it means to be God because we are not God. But yet, nonetheless, we can know God be based upon the works that he does, especially in the work of the Son, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is continuing his theme of love. God's love has been a blessed theme in this epistle. God is love in his essence. And God's love is manifested in the mission of the eternally begotten son. We see that in verses 7 through 11. And though we don't see God, we know that God abides in us and we in him. And we see the love of God in the father sending the son, which is what we saw in verses 12 through 16. So if we believe on the son, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we believe that he is the son of God. If we believe the love that God has for us, do we then need to fear that day of judgment? Do we then need to fear punishment on that great day if Christ's work is sufficient? And so this is what he goes on to talk about in verse 17. He talks about the boldness that we have in that day. And notice in verse 17, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. He talks about this idea of perfect love. Love has been perfected in us. Love has come to its appointed end. 
He's talked about the perfection of love already. We saw the perfection of love or the appointed end of love, the sincerity of love is seen in chapter two when we keep God's commandments, when we keep God's word. If we do what God says, we can be assured that we are born of God. Again, the keeping of God's commandments does not make us born of God, but it assures us we have been born of God. Remember, he's talking about our love for one another, the manifestation and assurance of our status before God, that our Christian lives can give us assurance that we are born of God and justified in his sight. Beloved has been perfected in chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps his word Truly, the love of God has been perfected in him. So we see it in keeping God's word. Love has a purpose. Love has a specific uh, uh, end for which God uh, has appointed it. It is to do good to others and to do good according to his word. We also saw how it is perfected in chapter four, verse 12. When we love one another, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Remember, it's God who works it in us. God who uh, uh, we are, we are found, it's founded upon Christ and flows out of that foundation of being found in him. But nonetheless, if we're saved, we ought then to love one another and love God's word. And then love comes to its appointed end in verse 17 on that final day. It's a love that rests on the promises of God in the day of judgment. We've loved God in this world, not perfectly, but because the love that we have is an assurance of who we are in Christ, we do not need to fear that day when Christ comes again. So love moves to this appointed end where we shall dwell with God forever and we shall only love God. Right now, we struggle with loving God. Right now, we struggle with loving others. We still have remaining corruption. We have been changed. We have been sanctified. We've been given a new heart. But yet, nonetheless, we still have remaining corruption. And so we long for that day, not because we, well, certainly because we hate sin, but because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've already experienced the already. We long for the not yet. We long for that time where there is no more pain, sorrow, suffering, and sin. When we struggle with love, when we struggle with loving God, when we struggle with praying, when we struggle with coming to church, when we struggle with considering other people. And our foundation on that day is because of Christ. Love has been perfected. It comes to this end that we can have boldness in that day of judgment. He's talking about our standing before God most high. God is a just judge, and when he comes again, he will rightly punish sin. God is love, and that's, his love is manifested in the gospel where sin is punished in another. God must punish sin, right? God is a just judge. He'll either punish it in the person for their sins, or he's punished it in another. In Jesus Christ. That's why we believe in the penal substitutionary atonement. That's why we believe Christ stands in the stead of his people. And the punishment that his people deserve is poured out upon him in our place. And so the, one of the reasons we can have boldness before him is because of that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our boldness comes from the sacrifice of Christ, who is that propitiation. He's used that word twice in this epistle. 
Propitiation just means the turning away of the wrath of God. If Jesus has turned away the wrath of God and you've believed upon Jesus Christ, why do you need to fear that day? And if he's worked in you, if he abides in you, if you see that abiding manifest, uh, not perfectly, but nonetheless in your love for one another, why do you need to fear that judgment day? And he's talked about boldness before, boldness now in our prayers. We saw that in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We can come before Christ because Christ is sufficient. We see this in Hebrews 4. He is that high priest who is able to sympathize with us, dear brethren. And we can boldly approach that throne because he is in the heavenly places. When we sin, when we struggle with sin, you know where we're supposed to go? To Jesus Christ, confess it to him. That's what John says in John, uh, 1 John 1. If we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, dear brethren. We, should, uh, we shouldn't wallow. The first place we need to go is Christ Jesus, for his work is sufficient for us. Or to put it in the way Newton put it, when sin would fill me with distress... The throne of grace I dare address, for Jesus is my righteousness. Dear brethren, Jesus is our righteousness. And because he is at the right hand of God the Father, because of the benefits that have been applied to us by the Holy Spirit, we are righteous in the sight of God. So we call the doctrine of justification. It is Christ's work for us. His righteousness is imputed. His righteousness is transferred to us that as we that even now we are not guilty in the sight of God most high. We haven't heard God say to us not guilty, but on that judgment day we will. On that judgment day we will hear God say audibly not guilty. Now we know from God's word that we are not guilty, but we are still waiting for that day when it is declared on that judgment day. That's why when Christ dies upon the cross end time judgment comes forward that when we go to the judgment we do not need to fear so we can have boldness now we see that in first john 3 and we'll see it again in first john 5 but we have boldness for that day a future boldness on the day of judgment we already saw this a little bit in chapter 2 verse 28 and now little children abide in him and when he that is christ appears we have boldness or confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming if you know he is righteous know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him that is if we are found in him if we are born in him and if there's evidence in our life that show that we are his then we can be assured that we are righteous in his sight Sanctification flows out of our justification. Sanctification is Christ's work in us. That's our Christian life. That is where we increase and decrease and grow and do stupid things. But justification never changes. Our status before God never changes because of Christ. And we cling to that. We, we hold to that. We believe that to be absolutely true. It is Christ's work for us. Justification, sanctification is Christ's work in us. But those who are justified are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But justification is one of the benefits, one of the saving graces there are other things that Christ does in us by the Spirit, and one of those things is sanctification. It's the double benefits 
that John Calvin speaks of. And so we can have boldness now, and we can have boldness in that day when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. There's going to be a great day of the Lord when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. We don't know when that day is going to be, but we know that it shall come. It shall happen. It shall happen at a time where we don't know. It shall come like a thief in the night. That is the next eschatological event. And when Christ comes back, he ushers in the new heavens and new earth. Second Thessalonians 1 has this, all three of those things, resurrection, uh, maybe not all three, but a lot of them together, resurrection, uh, judgment, new heavens and new earth. That's all the same day resurrection, judgment, new heavens and new earth. Jesus speaks in a similar way in John chapter five, when he talks about the judgment that has been given to him as the son of man. And so we see in John five, 22 and 21, I'm gonna start with 21. John five, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so, the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. What we see in verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself. So he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can have myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me resurrection judgment at the same time. Same thing in second Thessalonians chapter one as well. And so the assurances on that terrifying day for the unbeliever it's meant to be a great day of encouragement and boldness for the people of God. We have boldness. We have confidence on that day. And we have that confidence because of Christ. Notice verse 17 at the end there. Because as he is, so are we in this world. I admit that's a difficult sort of sentence there for us. A difficult clause for us to unpack. Uh, there are several ways to take it. One it could refer to just as we have spoken of the love of God. And we certainly speak of the love of the father to the, with respect to the love of the son. So as the father loves the son and sent the son, so too are we loved in this world. That could be part of it. But I think better we need to refer, th uh, refer to it or think of it as access. Access to God. Our standing before God. Just as he, Christ is. Where is Christ in his human body? He's at the right hand of God, the father. He is at the right hand of God, the father. And just as he is, so are we in this world. That as we traverse this present evil age, we don't see the throne room of heaven. We believe it to be true. Yet nonetheless, we are before God through Jesus Christ. 
That is why we can boldly approach and boldly come to God through Christ Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and what we've seen in 1 John as well. Just as Christ is at the right hand of God and we are united to him, so are we at the right hand of God. So too does the Father hear us. And so too does the Father answer our prayers. And just as he answers our prayers and we have access to him now, so too will we on that day when Christ comes again. See how it's all connected? We have boldness now and we have boldness on that day because we're already before the throne of grace. And as, we're, and as we come before it in full on that day, we do not need to fear. There are many present troubles, but the reality is we are already righteous in God's sight. And if that is the case, why should we fear? Why should we fear that judgment day? Dear brethren, we have that boldness in that day of judgment, and we can have this boldness without a slavish fear. He goes on to unpack this in verse 18. He makes a general comment first. There is no fear in love. A general comment. Now, brethren, we believe we ought to fear God, right? Proverbs chapter 1. That is called a filial fear a recognition of who God is, and a filial fear finds refuge in the one we fear. God says he'll judge, but you can find forgiveness in him, believe upon him. A slavish fear is fearful of punishment and does not find refuge in the one who can dispel that and remove that misery. Good example of this are the nations. When Israel is entering into the land, they're fearful of Yahweh, but they don't find refuge in Yahweh. Who finds refuge in Yahweh? Rahab finds refuge in Yahweh. It is a filial fear of Rahab. This is God. He is the one who, you know, he, he, he opened the Red Sea. It came down on the Egyptians. We heard what he's done. There, she's fearful and finds uh, and she comes to him in faith. That is not what we're talking about here. It is a slavish fear. It is this fear of punishment. It's a fear that does not trust in the promises of God. It's akin to what is said in Romans chapter 8. I love Romans 7 and 8. We should love every chapter of the Bible, but Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7, I do believe, is talking about the converted man. Some people believe it's talking about the pre-converted Paul. I think it is the converted Paul talking about the tension of this age and the age to come. Brethren, we live in that tension. We live in the tension of the already not yet. We've already been saved in Christ. We already experienced the age to come in Christ, but we still struggle with sin. This age, age to come. So in one sense, we struggle with sin. In one sense, we struggle with remaining corruption, but at the same time, there is no more condemnation. Chapter 8. And he goes on to talk about how we have the spirit of God and talk about that spirit of adoption. Again, there's status involved here. Status, justification is a doctrine of status. We're right before God most high. Adoption is another doctrine of status. We are adopted as children to this one who is father. And he says in verse 15 of Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We may still struggle with sins, dear brethren, but as we sin, Christ's work is sufficient. And if we sin, we do not need to fear that judgment day. That's the encouragement that this text is meant to bring for the people of God. There is no fear in 
love. If we love one another, if it manifests that we care for one another, it shows that we have feared God in faith. It shows that we are his and we do not need to fear that judgment day because he goes on to say, verse 18, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves judgment is what that should say. Not torment, although that is what will happen to those who are judged for their sins forever. But he's talking about transcendent retribution. He's talking about that judgment day because fear involves torment. If you fear to the point where you do not believe the promises of God to forgive sins, then you have not found refuge in Jesus Christ. Gill says, this is not the filial fear of God, the new covenant grace of fear, which is the beginning of wisdom. And it is consistent with faith, hope, love, and spiritual joy. But... It may rather refer to that they are not afraid of the day of judgment and of hell and damnation. Where hatred of the brethren has place, there is a fear and dread of these things as were in Cain. But those that love the brethren, they know they are passed from death to life and shall not enter into condemnation and therefore are in no fear of any of these things. No fear in love And the application is, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Have not leaned and believed on Christ, have not come to him in faith. Christ's work is sufficient. That's why every other religion, that's why any sort of deviation from the doctrine of justification and the mixture of justification and sanctification and any sort of works that contribute to our standing before God can give someone fear. It tramples on the finished work of Jesus Christ. His work is sufficient. Believe upon him. His work is sure. Believe upon him. And if you're an unbeliever here today, a day of judgment is coming. Believe upon him. And you do not need to fear that day. If you believed on Christ, you do not need to fear that day. Because fear involves punishment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Again, that's why the doctrines of justification and sanctification are so important. That's why we cannot blend them together. We cannot mix them together. We have to understand how they're related and connected, but also how they are different. And so justification is Christ's work for us. Sanctification is Christ's work in us. Because he who fears has not been made perfect in love because as he is, so are we in this world. And so the application, brethren, this is whole sections application, right? Don't fear. Don't fear the day of judgment. Long for the day of judgment. Hope for the day of judgment. See, the most beautiful thing is, too, dear brother, I remember when one of my professors mentioned this. And it helped me because I used to think that God was going to play a movie of all the things I thought that nobody saw. That's not what God is going to do. But what happens first? Resurrection. Bodies conform to Christ's body. That happens first. Then we go to the judgment. And we go to that judgment already clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness now, but we do go to that with self-same conformed heavenly body to his. That happens first. Then judgment. Then the new heavens and the new earth. Don't be afraid. We have boldness now. We have boldness uh, on that day because of Christ and his sufficient work.
So have boldness, dear brethren. Be encouraged that we can have boldness before God in Jesus Christ. So that's our boldness we have, or our boldness before God. Let's then look secondly at our love for God in verses 19 through 21. Our love for God, verses 19 through 21. And notice kind of the center of these five verses, verse 19. And again, the foundation is God's love for us. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. That is the order, isn't it? God loves us. Not that we love God, but God loves us. We were not seeking God. We did not love God. We loved ourselves. And yet God sent his son. And we see his love for us in the sending of the son and in the son's work for us to die upon that cross that we might have life, that we might have love and we have it in Jesus Christ. We didn't love God, but God loves us in Christ. He is the one who provides for us our Christ. He is the one who applies the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. It's what we call the order of salvation. It's what happens in our Christian walk. The only way we can love God, dear brethren, is, yeah, if he first loved us, but also if he put something new in us, if he's given us a new heart. That's what the doctrine of regeneration teaches us, doesn't it? He has removed the heart of stone. He's given us a heart of flesh that we might see our sin, see our need for Christ and endeavor in our Christian walk as God is sanctifying us in Christ to honor and glorify him. I love the way our confession strings and connects the section on the gifts given on the graces in chapters 10, 11 and 13. Chapter 10 is effectual calling. Chapter 11 is justification, and chapter 13 is sanctification. I just want to read it, okay? Some of these, point out some of these things. So we see that in chapter 10, paragraph 1, men are called effectually by the Spirit and the Word out of the state of sin, and what does God do? To a grace and saving knowledge by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace, we are born of God. How does we know that we're born of God if we love one another, but it's God who makes us born again. So effectual calling. Justification, chapter 11, paragraph 1, which is absolute mastery when it comes to dealing with all the issues and defining what justification is. Those whom God effectually calleth, so going with chapter 10, also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them. That's Roman Catholicism. Not by infusing righteousness into them. It is Christ's righteousness for us, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them nor done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing the act of faith. So it's not our faith that is imputed to us, but it's Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God, pardoning their sins, accounting them and accepting them as righteous. Then he goes, they go on to say in paragraph two, 
Faith alone is the instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. Or to put it another way, those who are justified will be sanctified. And those who are being sanctified are justified. They go hand in hand. You see how it happens in our Christian life, how we're saved. We are shown our sin or we were given a new heart. We're shown our sin. Uh, we repent, turn from our sin. Repentance is a gift. We turn to Christ. Faith is a gift. What happens when we believe we're now justified, adopted, and we are being sanctified. And then chapter 13 on sanctification, paragraph one they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You see, again, it is Christ's work in us when it comes to sanctification. But notice, it's that new principle that has been implanted. It's that new heart that has been given and flowing out of that and flowing out of our justification. We can then do what is pleasing in God's sight, albeit not perfectly. And if we claim to be God's, if we claim to be Christ's, if we claim to love him, we must recognize that certainly our love flows out of his first love for us. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. And we looked at that in verses 7 through 16. We see it's not that we love God, but that he loves us. And so if he loves us, we can have confidence before him. We can say we love him, but we also can have assurances that if we say we love him, then we ought to love one another. And he frames this in the way of dealing with hypocrites. Verse 20. If we say we love God, but hate our brother, we are a liar. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? If one says, I love God, but does not care for those around him or her, how can they say they love God? Now, the love of God, when we seek to love God, certainly is manifested in the first four commandments. No other gods before you. Don't make for yourself false idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day. That's how we honor and glorify God. We also honor and glorify God as we love and care for one another. That is his whole point in verses 20 and 21. And the, 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 the argument goes from the lesser to the greater. If you've seen your brother, if you've seen your brother, you can see them. You can look across the aisle. You can look behind you. There are fellow brothers and sisters here and you do not love them. How can you say you love God whom you cannot see? Going back to verse 12. If you say you love God, but you do not love brethren, how can we say that we love God? And so he says that very clearly. He is a liar who says such things. If we say we love God, but we do not love our brethren, how can we love, say that we love God? Because it's not just the first four commandments that manifest our love for God, but it's how we love one another as well. We've often talked about priority and the Bible speaks about priority. You need to love God first. 
I wholeheartedly believe that, dear brethren. Then you love your spouse second. They're above your children. Sorry to say that. (laughs) Then it's the children. Then it's your job. That is what the order needs to be. And hopefully pastors get that. I've tried to, you know, believe that. But some pastors do not understand that very thing. That's why if I don't pick up a call, please leave me a message. (laughs) I might be with my family. I might be caring for them. But, you know, because my first ministry is my wife. And then it is my children. Then it's you guys. Sorry. I love them more than I love you. But I do love you uh, as well. So we have this priority order. However... We can also view it in the way that we, as we love our spouse and love our children and love our church or engage in our task as in whatever vocation we are in, that's how we love God as well, isn't it? You see, you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or a small group leader or a member of the worship band to honor God. You just have to be faithful. Just read your Bible, pray every day, love your spouse. If God has given you a spouse, love your children. If God has given you, a ch- uh, given you children, work hard at your job. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. How often does Paul speak about the slaves and slave masters, which has application to employee and employer relationships? We must do all as if unto the Lord. Whether we eat or drink, it must be in honor of God most high. And so we can love one another or love God in our love for one another because he drives to that point where he says in verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That's why it's important to know the first love God with the first four commandments because hopefully that then flows into how we love other people. If we hear about God, we worship God, we put him first, hopefully that helps us then to love our fellow brothers and sisters. If we love God, we must love our brother. And remember, love is defined by God's law, the Ten Commandments. They are applicable. They abide still, not to, uh, to, uh, to make us right before God, but as a pattern for living. Gives us clarity. He's going to talk about how commandments are not burdensome in verse 3. I mean, because it gives us clarity. How do you love God? Well, no other, we've already talked about this. No other gods before you. Don't make false idols. That is, come to church and worship right. And right demeanor in worship. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Take him at his word. And remember the Lord's day. Remember the Sabbath day. Not as a drudgery, not as a list of do's and don'ts, but we get to come and worship God most high. And then we also have the other six commandments as well. It gives us clarity how we love one another and how we love God. And notice, it does start with the household of God. Sometimes we can struggle with that. Who's my neighbor? Who do I love? You know, we ought to be loving and kind and gracious to all. However, as we've said, some people have the priority. That's why the hope is that pastors have their household in order. Because if they don't have their household in order, again, not perfection, they're going to be garbage pastors, Right? If they don't love their spouse or love their children and keep them in order, how are they going to keep the church in order? The family is a microcosm. You must love your families first, dear brethren. Love them. Cherish them. Make sure you um, uh, build them up. Don't murder. Don't be angry. Don't hate. But build them up. Encourage them. Uplift them. I would rather have a husband who is, works hard, is kind to his wife who builds her up, who leads the family, than someone who's in the member of a worship band. They're doing their drumming or whatever and shredding their guitars or whatever, and then on on Sunday and then on Monday, they're tearing their wife down. 
Work on loving your spouses first in our daily Christian walk. It shows that we can honor and glorify God in any realm in which we are in, to honor and love and glorify him. Because there's only so much time and so many people we interact with, we do have to prioritize. But it does seem to be an order there. We love our brethren first. We love Christians first. We love those closest to us first. Then we can branch out further. This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That is the application too, isn't it? We love our brethren. And as we love our brethren, we love those who are closest to us. That is a manifestation of our love for God. Now, again, remember the foundation. We must always remember that foundation, don't uh, don't we? We must always remember uh, where our hope and where our source lies. And that's in Christ. In him and his finished work. We cannot love unless he first loved us. We cannot love unless the spirit works in us and it flows out of being found in him. That's why the main thesis of the entire book is chapter 513. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Or as chapter 5, 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. That's it, isn't it? That's the Christian life. It's very clear. Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Or as we saw in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Believe on Christ, love God, love your neighbor. That's our Christian walk. Believe God, believe in Christ, love our brethren. That is our Christian walk. That is what God has called us to do. And it flows out of that foundation of being found in him. And thankfully, again, to reiterate that our standing before God does not change because of Jesus Christ. And we can have boldness on that great day because of what Christ has done for us. And if you're an unbeliever here today, God will come again. Christ will come again and judge the living and the dead. And if you don't believe upon him, you will die in your trespasses and sins and you will be punished forever according to your sins. That's why you need to believe on Christ. Believe that he is the son of God. Believe that he lived, died, and rose again. Believe in his name, and in his name you shall have a righteousness not your own, and you do not and will not need to fear on that final day. And brethren, remember, it's not that we loved God, but he first loved us. We love because he first loved us, And our boldness before God is founded on the blood of Christ. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for your great love. We are thankful for your mercy and for your forgiveness and for your kindness. And we're thankful that you have worked in us a great work. Thank you that you've done a great work in the finished work of Christ. Thank you that you've given us a new heart by the Spirit because of Christ and what he has done. Thank you that you've given us the gifts of repentance and faith. And we're thankful for the gift that we are justified in your sight, that we are adopted as children of God, that we are sanctified uh, as we've been given that new principle. 
And we pray that you'd help us to be reminded of this. Thank you that you are preparing us for heaven, that you're making us fit for heaven. And we're thankful that we are fit already because of Christ and his finished work. We do long for that day when Christ comes again. We long for the resurrection of the dead. We long for the day of judgment. And we do long for the new heavens and new earth. Thank you that we have boldness in that day. And thank you that we have boldness because of Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that we'd have boldness now. Help us not to be afraid to come before you, to confess our sins, to bring our petitions, to know that we are at your right hand in Jesus Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. And we do pray that we would recognize that it's not that we loved you, but we love you because you first loved us. And we pray that we wouldn't just love you, but as we love you, that we would love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, love those especially who've been given to us in our immediate families, and even when their time comes, to love those outside of the flock of Christ as well. So help us to love our neighbor according to what your word says, and we're thankful that it does flow out of our standing with you and does not contribute in any way to our final justification. Thank you that that is sufficient, that we are justified now, and we long to hear the words, we are not guilty on that final day. So give us the encouragement we need. Give us the strength that we need. Help us to love the things that you love. And we pray that you be honored and glorified. In the name of